This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Thanks for tuning in for another episode. In this episode, I sit down with Dan Turkell, who invests and lives in my local market of Springfield, Missouri. And we talk all about the Burr method of real estate investing. What is it? How do you implement it? And some of the pitfalls that go along with it. For those of you who aren't aware of the Burr method, I think you're going to gain a lot from this episode and really understand how it can powerfully generate wealth quickly for you. And for those of you who are aware of the strategy, I think you're going to uncover a lot of hidden gems and really know what to do going into your next burr, some pitfalls that you can avoid. So before all that, here's today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is carefully budget for carrying costs. These costs can really eat you alive if you allow them to. For example, I'm talking about hazard insurance, utilities, real estate taxes, and even vacancy. If you don't budget for these things, um, it can really turn your deal bad pretty quickly. Because for example, let's say you're renovating a property for three months. So that's three months worth of checks you're writing out for insurance, utilities, real estate taxes. And on top of that, you're not collecting any rental income and you're not selling that property for a profit. So you do have to foot that bill. So make sure you build that into your underwriting process. And I would also recommend to always estimate the project or the renovation to take longer than you expect. So if you're holding back three months of carrying costs, I would hold back four months or even five months to be more conservative. So make sure you carefully budget for carrying costs. So with that all being said, I'm going to introduce today's guest. Dan Turkell earned a bachelor's degree in psychology from Rutgers University, and after graduating, he went on to serve as a Peace Corps volunteer in Albania. Upon completing his service, he continued to work with the Peace Corps as a recruiter throughout the East Coast. Dan now lives with his wife in Springfield, Missouri, where he invests in real estate and works as a realtor with Keller Williams. I'm very excited to have Dan on. It was been a pleasure meeting him and getting to know what he's doing in real estate and how he's growing very quickly. So you're going to love this one. And without further ado, here's episode 11 of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. Welcome to the show, Dan. How are you doing today? I am doing well. How about you? Doing fantastic. I'm glad to have you on. Um, you're a local agent and investor in my area, and I just am super happy to talk to you. Um, can you give the listeners a short introduction about yourself, how you got started in real estate? Sure. So my name, again, is Dan Turkell. Um, I can trace it back to first reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, few, maybe five years ago. That's kind of the catalyst that sent me down this path. Um, started up a real estate investing group over in New Jersey when I was still living out on the East Coast. Then my wife and I moved out here to Springfield a couple of years ago. And I thought, hey, I'm either going to go all in on wholesaling or being an agent. So I decided, let's uh, let's go the agent path. So I signed up with Keller Williams after I got my license. And the rest is history. I've been investing, I'd say, for, I guess, for the past year and a half now. 
and um, working as an agent, helping folks buy and sell real estate in the greater Springfield area. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. And um, when I kind of was on the phone getting to know you and so forth, um, I, I know you have experience in the Peace Corps. Can you talk about like what that was like and maybe how that segued you into real estate? Sure thing. So when I, so I am originally from New Jersey and I didn't really, I went to Rutgers University and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after graduating. I knew I wanted to help others. I knew I wanted a real adventure, uh, but I really just wanted to take some time to get away from everything and everyone I knew to get to know myself better. And that's when I realized just how good of a fit Peace Corps was going to be. So um, I ended up applying. It took about a year or so to get in. And back then you couldn't choose where you wanted to go. So at first I thought I was going somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. And then they said, nope, just kidding. You are going to Albania. And I was like, Albania, what? You know, I did not know anything about the country, but as soon as I found out that's where I was going to be spending the next couple of years of my life, I decided to quickly do uh, quite a bit more research into it. And it ended up becoming uh, one of the best parts of my life, no doubt. Uh, we like to say that Peace Corps is the toughest job you'll ever love. And that is just spot on because it really was difficult. I was a health education volunteer. So I spent a lot of time. I, I ended up writing a grant to donate uh, medical equipment to my city's hospital. I started up a youth center while I was out there. I was involved in a lot of health education presentations. And it was just a very rewarding experience. And what I found was that I was able to help a whole bunch of people. I really did have the adventure of a lifetime. And I was really just given this opportunity to kind of take that time away from everything and everyone I knew to get to know myself better. And that I think was probably one of the most beneficial parts of it because I really, you know, in Peace Corps, a lot of it comes down to your own work ethic and really being a self-starter, right? There's no one really looking over your shoulder. It's really important for you to just get out there and build relationships with folks and kind of set a schedule, stick to it. Really, you're responsible oftentimes for the structure you bring into your life as a Peace Corps volunteer. And I think by thriving in that environment overseas, it has really enabled me to also thrive as a real estate agent. Um, because I think a lot of people get into this business for the freedom that comes with it. And I think that's also why many people get out of this business because of the freedom that comes with it. And after having gone through Peace Corps and I really learned what it meant and took to thrive on your own, um, I think that's what has enabled me to build a pretty decent real estate agent business and also a real estate investing business. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you don't have to explain it, but the Peace Corps, it's based on my understanding is an independent agency, you know, that focuses on humanitarian efforts. So I can imagine that that's probably fulfilling work. You know, you're helping other people in mm -hmm. probably more challenged countries, but it's also probably draining on yourself. So can you explain like why you eventually left that and, um, you know, moved to the Midwest here? Sure. Sure. So, Peace Corps service is 27 months long. 
Um, it's basically it's two years of service. Um, and then you have about three months of training in the country that you're serving in before you actually go on and become an official volunteer. So, um, that's why I left because I completed my service. Most folks leave at that point. Some do stay and some folks even end up marrying people in that country and have kids. And I, I, several volunteers that I actually serve with are still over there with families of their own now. And it is just amazing to see that happen because when you're living in a community, literally anywhere for that long, you really have a chance to just truly become a part of that town. And I think that's one of the things that sets Peace Corps apart because you're there for so long, right? Like, honestly, my first year, it was just a lot of learning, just a lot of coffees with people, getting a feel for the community. But by the time I was there for, you know, 15, 16 months, I knew who to go to, where to go, what to do, when to do it. I understood the culture. I understood the language. And that really opened many doors for me that would have otherwise remained shut. So um, when the 27 months were done, um, I went through the COS, we call it, closing of service ceremony. And then we all shipped back to different parts of the U.S. And I actually came back to New York. I was living in Staten Island. Actually, from the airport, my girlfriend at the time, she picked me up with my family and we ended up, I moved straight in with her, like from the airport. Um, and she was completing a residency program out there in Staten Island. And then when she completed that program, her and I moved to Springfield because she just really connected with the folks she was going to be working with out here. And um, her job is ultimately yeah, what led us to the Springfield area. Sure. Well, first off, I mean, Thank you for your commitment and, and service over in Albania. Um, sure I think thing. that's something to be mentioned and applauded. Um, but obviously, the main thrust of our show is talking about real estate, uh, specifically investing. So mm-hmm. I want to really highlight the BRRRR method, the BRRR method. Uh, it's a it's a method that you and I both enjoy. Um, and so when you got back to Springfield after serving your 27 months in the Peace Corps, did you implement that strategy right away to start building your portfolio? Or was it something you had to learn? Like when you got back here, did you immediately just go right into it or was there a delay? (laughs) Not at all. So um, like I think I mentioned before, when I got back from the Peace Corps, I ended up reading a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And if you have not read that book, pause this this interview and go read the book because that is priority number one. Uh, So that book is really what opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, in the book, they say the rich don't work for money. They have their money work for them. And I was like, what does that even mean? And that's when I learned the importance of spending money on assets versus liabilities, right? Assets are things that you spend money on that put money back in your pocket. And I'm like, huh, you know, that's that's a great way of looking at it. So what kind of assets should I get involved with? And, you know, I was thinking stock market, real estate, all these different things. And then I quickly realized real estate was going to be a best fit for me because I like the idea of controlling an asset rather than leaving it up to board members somewhere with stocks. So I... um just did a lot, a lot of research into it. I read a lot of different books. 
Um, I got exposed to Bigger Pockets, which is a fantastic uh, online forum for real estate investors. And in reading through all of these different things, I, I first, it was kind of like, okay, assets over liabilities, then what type of asset, real estate, then what type of strategy. And at first I, I started to dabble a bit in wholesaling lease options. Uh, but then I decided that wasn't really for me. Uh, and I then realized that the Burr method was going to be the best fit because of several different reasons. One of which is that you're able to recycle the same funds over and over again with the Burr method. And I also like the idea that you're kind of required to master all levels and facets of real estate investing when you do the Burr method, because you're first required to buy the property. So you have to find it, then you need to renovate it, then you rent it out, then you refinance it, and then you repeat that process, ideally with the same funds. And because you need to kind of find the deal, renovate it, rent it out, deal with the finances, there's all those different layers to it. I think it kind of demands the best of you as a real estate investor. Um, so for those reasons, amongst many more, I realized that using the Burr method was really going to be the best way for us to build wealth and ultimately achieve financial independence. Yeah, good point. It makes you a more well-rounded investor because you have to know so many steps. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't want this episode to be just, you know, a broad overview of it. I want to go really deep and actually do a, a deep dive on one of your deals that you've implemented the Burr method on. Cause I think there's a lot of people there that know what it is. Um, but I want to provide more of the in-depth discussion and the pitfalls and the obstacles and how uh, we can prevent listeners from making the same mistakes that we did. So that first B in the, in the five letters, the buy. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you explain more more deeply like how or why getting a good deal is so important and how to buy a property right? So it's first important to understand that you make your money when you buy. All right. We oftentimes say that in the world of real estate investing, and it is key. And what we really mean is that we're buying at a low enough point so that we're able to capture equity in the property. Right, We don't want to buy at market value. We want to be able to buy far under market value and then boost the value of that property by renovating it. And um, ideally, want your acquisition price plus your renovation costs will be significantly less than what the value of the property is once it's all fixed up. So it's really important to buy at a low enough price. Now, the question comes, well, how am I even able, like, why would folks sell at a low price? You know, we're, we're in the seller's market right now. How, how do I even find those kinds of deals? Why would anybody do that? And really there's, there's a few different kinds of distress that would lead someone to sell at a discount. So there's market distress, there is seller distress, and then there's property distress. So for market distress, that's like 07, 08, 09, back in the day, you know, probably you could, you could get um, properties back then at, at a decent price. Then um, there's seller distress. So that's if maybe someone's going through like a divorce or something, and they just have to really sell 
fast. They don't want to worry about repairs. They just want to sell quick, simple, as is, that kind of thing. That would lead to someone maybe selling sooner um, or selling at a discount. But what most oftentimes we find as real estate investors, we're able to capture those properties at a discount when there's property distress. So, you know, this could take many different forms, but normally, you know, the property is falling apart in some capacity, right? There's maybe foundation issues or the ceilings falling apart, plumbing problems that, you know, it's infinite amount of problems that could go wrong. But that's really what we are looking for when we buy are those types of problems. Because at the end of the day, we really are problem solvers as real estate investors. And I think it's really important to kind of look at it from that perspective and try and really just dive deep into what that person's story is and really what is going on and what's causing them to want to sell quickly or at a discount and this and that. And for my deals, it's kind of been a combination of of just personal things and also the properties being in, um, in kind of rough shape. So, um, yeah, I like seeing the property in distress. I mean, it's bad mm-hmm. for the seller, but I know that there's some level of motivation if the property's vacant, falling apart, mm-hmm. roofs caving in. So that's a good sign. Um, so I guess the, I want to touch on like a pitfall of each of these steps. So um, the right way to do it would be to buy it right, but the pitfall would be to overpay. So how are you making sure that you don't overpay on a property? Um, yeah. Can you explain the formula you use? Sure, sure. So I use, when I'm when a deal comes across my desk and I first start to run the numbers, I initially look at, two different things. I use the 1% rule and the MAO formula. So the 1% rule states that the monthly rent that'll come in is going to ideally be equal to or greater than 1% of the purchase price of the property or your your all-in price. So acquisition plus rehab, let's say that's 100,000. Then ideally you're going to be able to rent that place out for at least 1,000 a month. And the idea behind it is that if you are able to get a thousand a month in that example, then you will be more likely to cash flow on it. You'll have more money left over at the end of the month. You'll have more um, abilities to profit on it. So if I see that, you know, I'm going to be all in at a hundred and the most I can get in rent is like 600 right off the bat, I'm thinking, okay, this might not be for me, but then I take it a step further and look at the MAO formula. So MAO stands for maximum allowable offer. And it's a simple equation. So MAO equals 70% times the ARV minus renovation costs. So I'll break it down. So your maximum allowable offer is equal to 70% of the after repair value, what you expect it to be worth once you've renovated it. And then you subtract what you think the renovation costs are going to be. So really, there's two key variables in this equation. And when we say you need to know your numbers, a lot of it comes down to these two. You need to know what it's going to be worth once it's fixed up, the ARV. And you really need to know how much it's going to cost to fix it up. So um, as a real estate agent, I am able to price properties. I'm doing it all the time with clients that I work with. If they want to sell their property, we do a market analysis and I'm able to figure out what the comps are 
showing and then we're able to see what the market is really telling us the value of that property is. So um, obviously not everyone's a real estate agent, but that's a great way to better understand what the ARV is, is to work with a real estate agent and they'll be able to help you understand that first key variable in that equation. The second one, renovation costs. I'll be the first to admit that, you know, I, I'm not a a pro by any means when it comes to estimating renovation costs. What I would recommend doing is asking around for um, referrals for contractors and, you know, maybe going to a local real estate investing meetup, asking, you know, who has had success with a local contractor here in town and start to kind of interview those folks and see who might be a best fit for you and then build a relationship with that person. Try and send them business whenever you can. Don't just make it a one-way thing. And then start to have them walk these properties with you. Um, I have a contractor I work with where I'll I'll give him a call. I'll say, hey, this is the address. Can you meet me there at this time? And we walk it and he knows to just give me a number, you know, a ballpark figure of what it's going to cost based on the condition of that property. And that is where I get my second key variable, the uh, renovation costs. So um, if I were looking at a property and let's say I met the 1% rule and I looked it up, let's say the ARV was a hundred grand and the renovation costs were maybe like 20 grand. So we take 70% of the ARV, which is 70 grand, subtract renovation costs, which is 20 grand. So now we're at 50 grand. That would be the maximum allowable offer for me, meaning I, I wouldn't want to give any more than that. So I'd probably start at maybe like 35 or 40 and then maybe come up a little bit in negotiations, knowing that I really would not want to come in um, higher than that maximum allowable offer. Now in this market, it's, it's really tough to find good deals and I'm, I'm getting, a little less strict with that. I'll sometimes be willing to go up to like 75% of the ARV or maybe even 80% if it's a great location. Um, but that is how I make sure I'm, I'm buying right. And then there's, there's much detailed, more detailed analysis I'll go into, um, which I can chat about later. But I, basically, I use one of the uh, calculators on the bigger pockets website, the Burr calculator. And that really helps me to dial in and make sure that everything works. And if everything does play out and I'm getting um, decent returns, it's meeting my criteria, I'm able to buy it at that MAO amount or less, then I put an offer in. And that is the first step in this whole process. Yeah, that was a good breakdown. So as long as you know the ARV and the repairs or have a, a decent idea of what those are, you can make an educated offer. So sure. moving on to the second phase of the Burr method, the rehab, that's the yeah. second step after buy. So I know you touched on that. You walk it with your contractor, you get you know two or three good estimates on what that would be. How do you then make sure you're managing those contractors well, getting a good scope of work and just knowing what you're getting into in, in this step. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's important for you to be able to compare apples to apples, right? Some contractors are going to want to just give you a number and that's it for what the total cost is. Some will be, be willing to go into more detail about how it breaks down. I would encourage your listeners to ask the contractors that they're working with to give them a detailed line item bid 
that breaks down every single component of the rehab and shows what the material costs are and even the labor costs. And you'll want to have, you know, some kind of a spreadsheet or something that breaks down all of those things. And ideally you can get at least a few bids in and you're going to be able to compare and contrast and see where the outliers are. And what I like about that strategy is that you're able to kind of um, compare and contrast what some contractors are recommending be done because not every contractor is going to say the same exact thing, of course, right? That's part of the value in having several people walk it with you because one might point out something that's a great idea that the other few never even never even occurred to them. So in doing that with several different ones, you're able to kind of come up with a master scope of work that you, you know, really understand. And then you can maybe share that with a few other more experienced investors in your market, um, get an idea of what they think about that scope, see if they think it's all reasonable. And then, um, you know, you kind of kind of go from there. I like to definitely walk it in person with the contractor. I like to use a general contractor who manages all the other subcontractors. And I know I'm paying a premium for that, but I think it's important to focus on spending your time on the highest revenue generating activities. And for me as a real estate agent, that's working with my clients and helping people buy and sell real estate. That's not me managing subcontractors. So I'm willing to pay that premium to have the general contractor manage all of the other folks, make sure it all gets done right. And of course, that's a key part of that is trust, you know, and it takes time to build that trust, but it's really important to build that up with someone that you've, um, you know, had a chance to, to get to know. Yeah. Trust is key in that industry because, you know, you want to, as soon as you can get repeat business with one contractor, you're going to be better off. If you're just starting a new relationship each time, it's going to be difficult to Mm -hmm. get some headway. Relationships are key in this business. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I'd say that that is the single most important thing out there is, is relationships. You know, you, you don't need the money. You don't need it. Uh, well, time, money, and knowledge are the three key components to being a successful real estate investor. But I would say more important than all of that are the relationships you're able to build with folks. So, yes. Yeah. One more point I'll make about rehab is just know what kind of finishes you're going to do. For mm-hmm. example, if in this strategy, we're going to be renting the property out, and you'll see mm-hmm. that with later in the show, we're going to be renting this property out. And so it doesn't have to be flip quality unless you want it to be. So communicate that early on with your contractors, what the finishes are going to look like, because that will determine the scope of work. Yeah, no, that's a great point. Just to add to that real quick, I made several key decisions in renovating this property, knowing that it was going to be rented out rather than flipped. Um, For example, you know that 70s older kind of wood paneling that are in a lot of those older houses? Yeah. I was going to rip all that out, just put up like normal sheetrock and everything, but that was going to cost a lot more time and money. I would have done it if I was flipping it, but because I'm just renting it out, I decided to paint right over it all. Looks fine. And I managed to save quite a bit doing that. So... Which I mean, that may hurt your appraisal a little bit, but what they really are going to look at is like square footage, you know, kitchens and bathrooms and exactly garage, no garage. So, I mean, it wouldn't be the end of the world if you just painted that over. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So the third step in this equation, uh, the third 
letter and the BRRRR acronym is RENT. So um, once we get it rehabbed, it is ready to rent. It's exciting for uh, the owner like you as the investor because you're finally done with the renovations and you're excited to start you know, collecting rent. So how can we make sure we effectively manage this part of the, the step to maybe get the best quality resident to get the top rent income? How do you manage that side of the business? So I do it one way and my way doesn't, you know, it's certainly not the right way. I think you're faced with a decision at that point. You can either manage it on your own or you can hire a property manager to manage it for you. Like I said before, I work with a general contractor because I don't have the time or interest to manage a bunch of subcontractors. In a similar way, I work with a property manager because I don't have the time or interest to be managing properties. You know, I, I would rather focus on building my real estate agent business and also looking for deals in the investing business. I think that's the best use of my time. So I've chosen to work with a property manager. And again, it's going to come down to the relationships. You know, the, I got connected to the one I used through um, an agent at my local KW office. And, you know, he seemed to come highly recommended and the guy who was recommending him, I really trusted him. And then I started hearing this company come up more and more and everything like that. And I was just thinking, you know, I think I'm going to, I'm going to at least interview them. So I interviewed a few different property management companies in town and some of them were like, yeah, we can set up a phone call. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like we're meeting in your office in person. We're going to sit down and actually have a legitimate conversation. And um, because it was really important to me to be able to look them in the eye and and really just trust them, because I think that's what it ultimately comes down to. You know, when you get to this point, once you've already bought the property and renovated it, I mean, you care about this thing, right? You don't want to just give it to anybody. So it was really important for me to establish that relationship. And I had already spoken to this property manager quite a few times before then anyway. Um, so that's how I chose to do it. And they do literally everything. They find the tenant, they manage the tenant, they, they really do everything. I, um, I don't really have to do anything once I get it rented out. I, they just use their software to send the rental income over and I, you know, I'll, I'll pay 10% of the rental income each month for that fee. And that's the going rate. You typically pay 10% for a property manager. Um, and I'm willing to pay that for the freedom and time that comes with that. So yeah, it's definitely a lot more passive that way for sure. Exactly. And I chose a different route. You know, I self-managed until I get to a lot more units and mm -hmm. it's just a, a process of, screening them well, using a good software to screen them well, get background checks, you know, eviction history, and then income verification. And then I do, I do one open house before I rent out a property just to see the applicants in person cool. so I can vet them That's in person. Idea. It's a good, and it's a good use of time too, because it's only one meeting instead of meeting every individual applicant. No, that's smart. And another thing to point out, you, um, you can, get plenty of free property management software. There's a lot of free software out there that'll really help you to build out a system around this property management. 
Yeah, I use Turbo Tenant and it's awesome. I cool. have no issues with Yeah, that. I've heard good things about Cozy too. Cozy, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hey, so on the fourth step um, of this process, we're looking at the refinance. That's the fourth letter of the acronym. So mm-hmm. can you explain, like, are you using uh, commercial financing for your refinance? Are you using residential? Explain how you operate this particular side of your business. Yep, yep. So with commercial... Conventional and commercial are two different beasts. With conventional, you're going to really have to adhere to a lot more strict rules. There's things like a seasoning period so that you you can't refinance within the first six months of when you buy the property. And, um, you know, you can only have a certain number of loans. I think it's 10 conventional loans and then you're out of luck. You just can't get any more after that. I think it's 10. Um, whereas on the commercial side, that's more of a, typically you'll, you'll be able to find a local lender in town that does commercial loans and they'll typically charge a higher interest rate, but they make the process just so much easier. Um, and that's really built on relationships. Uh, the, you know, I have a great relationship with a local lender in town and, um, I feel like, you know, we've both been able to prove to each other that, uh, you know, just credibility overall. And that goes a long way. So um, with the commercial loans, there's no limit to how many you can have. I think a lot of it comes more down to the deal itself. Um, But you are going to be paying that premium with the higher interest rate and typically a shorter amortization period. And it's probably going to be a variable interest rate as well. So I think there's pros and cons to both of them. I used the commercial loan on my first burr and I used the conventional loan on my second. And it was a much bigger pain the second time around getting that conventional loan on the property. But I'm glad I did because I was definitely able to lock up a much lower interest rate for 30 years. So I think it was worth jumping through the hoops to to make that happen. But, yeah, I think the biggest obstacle on this step everyone talks about is the seasoning requirements but you and i know that the commercial folks the commercial banks don't care as much about that in fact the one i use you could buy it today and refinance it tomorrow there's no seasoning requirements and if you say that's not available in your area you just have to keep you know networking with banks and yeah i would say the interest rate is a tick higher than residential or conventional, like you said. And the biggest thing that's going to kill your cash flow though, is the amortization. So going mm-hmm. from a 30 year amortization where you're paying off the property loan in 30 years, and then going to a 20 year, that mm-hmm. is going to hurt your cash flow. But, um, there are certain ways you can, you know, get it more flexible, for example. Um, and we haven't even talked about this, but, um, pulling out 80% of your money at, on the refinance. So when you refinance, you can, pull out uh, 75, 70, or 80%. Um, if you pull out 80% of the appraised value uh, of the property, then obviously you're getting more in your pocket, mm-hmm. but your cash flow is going to be lower. So I've always found it's difficult to strike that balance between do I want to pull out as much money as possible on my refinance or do I want to leave uh, a little bit in so that my cash flow is higher? How do you strike that balance? That is the latter that's that's what so 
in both of the deals that I've done so far, I chose to leave more equity in the deal so that my cash flow was higher. Because for us, it's all about you know growing that passive income. We really care more about that monthly cash flow. So I didn't pull out as much as I could have in both of them just to increase that cash flow. And I'll also mention since we're kind of at that refinance part that I did use kind of um, a unique technique to refinance it on the second one, because I did refinance it into a conventional loan, but I did that like three or four months after I bought it. I didn't wait the six months. And a lot of folks don't realize that this is possible. And if you're buying a property all cash, there is a way to do this. And I'd be happy to kind of describe it real quick if you think that that's something folks would be interested in. Yeah, certainly. By all means. Cool. cool. So there's there's a few different steps involved. So the first step is you basically, you create an LLC. Okay. Then you go ahead and buy an investment property. And then you have the LLC give you a loan for the home. And then you close on that home. Okay. And then you file the the deed uh, for that loan at like the county courthouse. And that's something that the title company can do. They'll they'll like formally submit all of the paperwork so that it is known that there is a mortgage basically on that property, but you're actually lending the money to yourself through the LLC. So once that's all filed at the county courthouse, then um, you use the money from the LLC to renovate the property. And then once the property is completed, then you have the conventional lender come in and get it appraised and refinance with them. And the key here is that they're doing a standard rate and term refinance. They're not, they're not doing a cash out refinance. And that makes all the difference. And that's how we're kind of able to to get around it. So it's kind of like a, a loophole because at that point, the conventional lender runs title and sees that there is a loan on the property. And then they you know, refinance you into a new loan and then they cut a check to the previous lender, which is you. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, and that check will probably be in the amount of like 75% of the value of the property. So ideally your acquisition plus renovation costs will be less than 75%. And then you're able to ideally pull out 100% of what you put into it. And if you can pull that off, you're able to achieve infinite cash on cash return because you are you have no basis left in the deal. You, you've pulled out more than you even put in. So that is ultimately why I, you know, I think the Burr method is, is, is a great way to go. And because you know, there was a lot more paperwork involved in doing it this way, but I was able to lock up a great, great rate. And that really helps with the cash flow, especially with it being amortized over 30 years instead of something much lower than that. I can't remember what the commercial lender said it would be. So um, if you're buying all cash, I highly recommend using that strategy. And that's something I'd be happy to you know, chat more with anyone one-on-one about. Yeah, I had not heard of that, um, but it makes perfect sense. There's so many ways to do this method, and that's what's so brilliant about it. There's not just, we've been describing like the most mainstream way to do it early on in this show and throughout the show, but that's not the only way. So another way that I implemented this creatively, it's not as creative as yours, um, but when I first 
bought my first investment property. It was 25% down because I thought that's what you had to do, right? Um, well, that was a year ago. And a few weeks ago, I refinanced that with a commercial loan. So they let me pull my whole down payment back out of that. And that just shows the power of the cash out refinance because I was able to basically put down a down payment and then get it back, but I still kept the property and it's still cash flow. So Beautiful. there's so many ways to to do this. It's just incredible. Um, so step five of this method is the repeat and that can go a lot of ways. So what ways are you repeating this process, recycling that same cash to achieve infinite returns, as you mentioned? Yeah. Yeah. So ideally you're, you're shooting to, to capture a hundred percent of, of what you put into it. And that's part of, again, one of the, the main benefits of the Burr method is that it increases the velocity of your money. We say like when you invest money out in the world, you, you put it out there and at some point a return comes back with the Burr method. You know, I was able to get a hundred more than a hundred 110% of my money back in like three or four months. So um, in doing it like that, because I'm able to get it all back, I'm like left with more money at the end of the day and a renovated property that's cash flowing. I mean, it's, it's, it's fantastic. So um, again, that's what you're shooting for. And if you are able to pull that off and you have the same funds that you started with, then you just kind of continue doing whatever led to that initial deal. So um, there's so many different ways in which you can find deals uh, as a real estate agent. You know, I'm connected to a great network of folks and I'm always letting people know that I'm looking for a deal. And um, I have one I'm probably going to check out next Tuesday and that one might be a good fit. I'm always kind of wheeling and dealing, checking out, you know, is this one going to work? Is that one going to work? And I just run the numbers like I described before. You know, you got your 1% rule, MAO formula. It's pretty simple stuff. Um, it's it's simple, but I wouldn't say it's easy. Actually, Gary Keller says that about real estate in general for real estate agents. It's simple, but not easy. And that certainly applies to real estate investing as well. Um, but it's it's certainly worth it. Uh, yeah, so... so- yeah. And uh, I want to tie a bow on this whole thing by just going through a deal deep dive with you on how this actually works in real life. Cause that's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to actually see it play out. So can you take us uh, one of your bird deals from the buy step to the refinance step? Yeah. Yeah. I can certainly do that. Um, so here, I'm going to pull something up on my end. So I, have some numbers in front of me here. Yeah. Numbers would help just so we can see how you were mm-hmm. able to get all your money back out at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, so I recently bought a property for a hundred, even hundred thousand. So again, first B bought it for a hundred, renovated it for put 35 into it. And that was a whole bunch of stuff, everything from HVAC to, you know, luxury vinyl plank throughout the whole house. I mean, a whole bunch of things went into that, knocking walls down, putting walls up. So I was into it for 135. The key part of this is that it was in a really good neighborhood. Um, And I was also able to add another bedroom 
in there. It was, I just rearranged how the square footage was being used. It was actually just a really big living room. So I kind of cut it in half, put barn doors in there. It still flows really well, but now it counts as a four, two instead of a three, two. And that helps with the appraised value. So um, again, so buy at a hundred, renovate for 35. I rented it out for, I got uh, 1700 a month in rent for that one. And for the refinance, uh, managed to get it to appraise for 192. So the lender comes in and says, Hey, we'll give you 75% of the value of that as a loan. So that's 144,000 is 75% LTV on that loan to value. So again, acquisition plus rehab is 135. But once I refinance, they're willing to go up to 144 back. So infinite cash on cash return there because I'm able to pull out more than I put in. And because it was a conventional loan, the payment on it was way, way, way less than the rent. So I'm cash flowing and I've recouped all my money. Um, So that's not exactly how that one played out because I did not choose to pull out everything. I, I chose to kept, keep some equity in there, like I spoke about before, because I we value cash flow more than being able to just pull cash out. Um, so, Wow, yeah. that's an incredible deal. Just based yeah. on the numbers you gave me, I, I bet you wish you had one of those right now. <laughs> you know what? You know what's crazy to think about? If I had like, you know, little, let's just say 10. If I had 10 of those, I'm set. Yeah, yeah, you know, we're good to go. Like, because <laughs> the cash flow has to be absolutely absurd on that. Because, yeah. um, yeah. yeah, so you were able to pull out all your money. Um, and then you left what nine grand in, back in it, even though you could take it out. So you have 135 in it. it you could pull out 144, mm-hmm. but you opted to keep that back in the deal to keep your yeah. cash flow good. Mm-hmm. So, um, it just goes to show the power. Like if you were a flipper, you'd be counting on a one-time paycheck of 20, 30, 40,000, but you were able to keep nine if you wanted and mm-hmm. keep the property for the lifetime exactly. cash flow. Exactly. And one point I'll make on that too. I think there's a lot of different strategies out there in real estate investing. And I think they all work. It's just a matter of what works best for you. What makes the most sense for you. I think flipping certainly plays a role in things, right? It's a great way to build up some capital. Um, but for us, cash flow is king. And that's just one more reason why it makes sense to burr the property and keep it where I like to think of burring as you're flipping it to yourself is really what a burr is. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was amazed by how much interest I had in the property when it was obviously being renovated. And, you know, we've got a dumpster out, it's on a corner lot. So there's this big dumpster and they see all these guys always working on it. And people are like leaving their business cards and stuff because they want to buy it because we're in this crazy seller's market right now. And I mean, I'll be honest, like I was really conflicted there towards the end because I knew that the appraised value was going to be way different than the market value. You know, as an agent, I know if I listed that house, I would have probably been able to get like 210 for it. Yeah. Um, but we remained focused on our goals and yep. you know, we we there's a lot of different ways you can do things. There's a lot of shiny objects out there with all these different strategies. And I like to think, you know, 
shiny objects will make you go blind. So just focus on your goals. And uh, we we stayed true to the Burr method. And now we've got a tenant in there and I'm looking for the next deal. Awesome. Yeah. So this has been a good overview. And I think we did some good, like detailed step-by-step analysis of what the burr looks like. Um, if you don't have anything more to add, I'm going to transition to the last section of the show. Is that all right? Sure. Dan? Yeah. Sounds good. Awesome. Well, this part of the show is called the triple threat. It's the same three questions we asked to each folks. Um, so what is the app tool or resource that has been the biggest game changer for your business? For me personally, I would have to say that it is having my real estate license, mm-hmm. especially with Keller Williams. For me personally, looking back at my whole path, I think that that has been one of the most helpful. It's the biggest game changer for me. I mean, that's what you asked. That's the biggest game changer yeah. for me. I'm able to access the MLS so I can price my own properties, right? For the M- for the MAO formula we went over earlier, one of those two key variables is the ARV, the after repair value. I can use the MLS to get the ARV on my own. I don't have to you know, bug an agent to help me with that. So I'm constantly using the MLS for that. I can also access properties on my own with my real estate license. So I've got auto alerts set up so that as soon as a property hits the market, boom, I'm the first one in there. Um, and I also have access to an awesome network of people at my local office. We're always... You know, we have a like a wealth building group in my office and we oftentimes chat about how things are going and we kind of pull each other up and folks will be sharing deals with one another. And the one I might be getting on Tuesday is because of one of the relationships I have with an agent at my local office. So I think having my license and and being at my brokerage in particular has probably been the most helpful part of the whole experience. And that's something, you know, I'm an open book. I'm happy to share more about that with anyone who wants to kind of better understand what it's like over there, because I think that was one of the best decisions I've made in this whole journey. Yeah. That's been echoed on a previous episode where having MLS access almost gives you an unfair advantage as an investor. For sure. It's critical. Question number two, um, what has been the biggest failure in the last year and why do you think it happened? So, I feel like this quote comes to mind. It goes, um, failure is not the opposite of success. It's part of it. Okay. I think too many people run the other way when they think of failure. I think we should run towards it because when you reach that point of failure, that's when you're in the growth zone. And I think by overcoming, you you either win or you learn, right? There's no, it's like a mindset thing. Uh, so I, that's initially at least what comes to mind, but for me, I'm not sure if you can classify it as failure, but over the past few years, I'd say it's been analysis paralysis for me. I am definitely a victim of analysis paralysis. And I think that that problem is ultimately rooted in fear of the unknown. If I'm being honest, it just comes down to not really knowing what is ahead of me in the, in this path of, of real estate investing in particular. Um, and what I've learned is that it's, you can't know what you need to know until you walk down that path a bit, right? Like we, everybody starts at a point in which they don't know what they don't know. 
then you get a better idea of things. And then you kind of know about what you don't know. And then you get an idea and you, you do know what you know needs to be known. But my point is that you wouldn't know any of that if you didn't take that first step. It's kind of like walking down a tunnel with a flashlight that's pitch black. You always see what that next step is ahead of you, but you're never going to get to the other side if you're afraid of all the dark that lies ahead, but you just need to have that faith that you'll at least know what the next step is. And that way of thinking about it really helped me take that initial step, right? Because I ran my numbers for the first deal I did. I was definitely nervous about it, but I'm like, I know enough to know what my most important next step is going to be. And I just kept on taking the next step and the next step and the next step. And before I knew it, the deal was done. And I'm like, what, why did I wait so long? You know, um, I know a lot of bigger investors will say that they wish they started earlier and everything. And I certainly do too. So don't let the fear of failure stop you from taking action. I think um, lean into that. Um, just study network and accept the fact that you'll eventually have to just take that initial leap of faith, that first step. Yeah. Yeah. You have to look at what's the most impactful thing you can do right now. So for investors, I would argue it's making offers and, and yep. negotiating with sellers. And if you're worried about the lack of knowledge, well, if you've listened to this podcast and you've read another book, I'll recommend um, the Burr book by David Green at Bigger Pockets. If yep. you've read that book and this podcast, there's really no reason why you can't do this, what you did on this deal, um, just with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. So what your problem is not more knowledge for the most part, unless you're just getting started, like you learned about real estate yesterday, your problem is not the lack of knowledge. Your problem is action. Yep. Question three, our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom with real estate investing, whether that's financial, lifestyle, or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? So for me, freedom has a lot to do with time and money. So as far as the money aspect is concerned, I'd say my wife and I are actively working towards financial freedom, financial independence. And for us, I think we'll achieve this once our passive income from the rental properties meets or exceeds our monthly expenses. But as far as time is concerned, I think that freedom revolves around kind of like our ability to choose to spend our time however we'd like, you know, and this oftentimes comes with financial freedom since we no longer have to actively work. And if we no longer have to work to earn a living, then, um, we can choose to spend our time however we'd like. And for us, that definitely would involve helping others in some capacity. That goes back to kind of the Peace Corps in me and and just traveling. I know my wife and I love traveling. Hopefully when you know things start to open up a bit more, we definitely like to travel more. So I think you know, real estate investing is um to means to an end, right? It's not about the, the real estate. I don't like love houses or something. It's it's a fantastic tool you can use to achieve your goals, right? And I, you know, I think one thing I heard that kind of resonated with me as far as the money aspect of it is money is good for the good it can do, right? I think it just brings out more of who you are, really. And I would love to get us to a point in which we're able to give back in ways that we never otherwise would have been able to. Um, if we weren't able to, you know, if we didn't have a decent portfolio of, of rental properties. So 
that's kind of uh, my thoughts on that. Yeah, good points there. And a lot of good points throughout this whole episode. I think people will gain a lot from this, not just about the Burr method, but just the whole real estate process, how you get a good deal, how you renovate, and then how you rent it out, how you refinance. So awesome. Well, I'm very honored to have you on the show today. It's been a pleasure. And where can listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, so um, I am happy to chat with anyone really about anything. So you can find my Facebook page online. You just look up Dan Turkel, um, Greater Springfield, I believe it is. Dan Turkel, Greater Springfield. And then my email address is danturkel at kw.com. So happy to help folks with really anything I can. Dan Turkel Keller Williams, Greater Springfield is the Facebook page. So I'd love, you know, would appreciate it if you like my page. You can follow me there, see what I'm up to. And um, yeah, feel free for anyone listening to reach out anytime. Very good. Well, thanks for sharing your knowledge, Dan. And um, you have a good rest of your day. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. And tune in next week for the next episode.